friends, let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read for us today from just a few verses, some of the last verses that the Apostle Paul wrote before he was executed. I'm starting in chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Hear now God's word. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love your appearing. We long for you to appear and make good on the promises of your resurrection that we will be resurrected to new life with you in worship forever. I pray we would attend to your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, you can't really understand the Apostle Paul. You can't read him, teach him, understand him, or truly the Old and New Testaments without understanding Easter. Easter is the center of our hermeneutic. That is, it's the center of how we interpret our Bibles. To know that Jesus has come, that he has died, that he has risen from the dead to defeat sin and death, turns the world upside down and it changes everything. We said last week from 2 Timothy that when Jesus died and rose again from the dead, he inaugurated eschatology. That is, he set things in motion that can't be undone. This now, these days that we stand in, are, are mark the beginning of the end. And as we get to the tail end of this letter, as we see what, what Paul is talking about here, you really get the cherry on top of Paul's Christology. Because this is where the world and faith and the kingdom of Christ is leading to in this passage. Paul, as he writes these things, he sees the grace of God in the resurrection of Jesus in three places. There's grace in death, there's grace in life, and there's grace in the second coming. And I want us to pause and look at each of those in turn. First, Paul is talking about grace that's in death. Look at verse 6. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now, Paul is using just a a powerful and beautiful illusion from the Old Testament. He's referring to the drink offering, which occurs in Numbers chapter 15. When somebody came to worship to the temple and they brought a burnt offering, a lamb or a goat, and it was taken by the priests and put on the altar and offered up as a symbol of taking away their sin, that same worshiper could also add to that sacrifice. It's being done, it's the full, complete burnt offering, but they could bring a grain offering or a drink offering alongside of it. If they were bringing a drink offering, they would take what amounts to, in our day, a bottle of wine, and they would pour that wine over the burnt offering, and the whole of it would go up as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This was worship. Well, the illusion here is clear what Paul is seeking to do. He is saying that the life and the death of a believer himself and all who are born again is likened to the drink offering. This is not the main thing. This is not the main offering. Christ is. His atoning work on the cross, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But our lives and how we spend them are likened to a drink offering that's being poured out on the altar and the whole of it is being received up to God in worship. 
Christ says, when you follow me, you imitate me in my death. Come, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So also when we come to him, we are like a drink offering being poured out onto the altar, received back to him in worship. Death for the believer is not something to be feared or fretted over or pitied. It's the only natural end of being poured out before the Lord. And in the resurrection of Christ, death is a grace to us. Well, secondly, Paul says there's grace in life. Look at verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So Paul keeps bringing up this Greco-Roman Olympic game imagery, right? This is humming in his mind. And he said, Christian living is likened to a foot race, to to a contest, to a competition. Now, Flannery O'Connor says in jest that the person or the pastor who tells you that, uh, who, who fails to tell you that the Christian life is a marathon race to the end, wrought with booby traps and obstacles, the person who doesn't tell you that, they're one part minister, three parts masseuse. They're more interested in therapy than theology, and they are not telling you the whole of the gospel. Paul says that running the race of Christianity is like a marathon wrought with competing and contesting and beating my body. But look what he says. The thing we have heard him plead with young Timothy from the very beginning in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Timothy, watch your life and watch your doctrine. Watch what you do and watch what you teach. Believe the gospel, trust God, live the gospel, and live out obedience before God. All of these things that he has said again and again to young Timothy, Paul can now say at the very end of his life, Jesus has kept me. He has kept me in the race. He has kept this deposit of the gospel entrusted to me. He has kept me in the contest. Jesus finishes what he starts, Jesus has kept me. In the resurrection of Christ, a Christian life lived faithfully to the end is a grace. That's the grace of God on us. Third and finally, he says that there is grace in the second coming. Julie and I were reading in bed the other night and we came across the word erstwhile and we were trying to define it and I said I think it means something like in the meantime and we debated for a while and realized no, that's not at all what it means. It means formally. Well, Paul's about to use a word that we're not that familiar with in English, henceforth, and what he means in English he also means in the Greek and that is there is a level of certainty here to what's about to happen. Now, Paul had told us Previously in verse 1, erstwhile, he told us in verse 1, and of Christ Jesus, who is about to judge the living and the dead. This is about to happen. Now he can say, henceforth, as in with all certainty, all that's left to happen is this. And it comes to us in verse 8. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And we have to pause right here because this begs a very important question. All of us who are born again are going to be fitted with crowns of righteousness. Whose righteousness is it? Is this our righteousness? Is this the award for a life that has been lived well? Have we run well and obeyed well and contested well and therefore God recognizes that righteousness and gives us a crown to represent that? 
Or is this a wholly other righteousness? Is this the righteousness of the righteous judge Christ whom he gives to us? The answer to that question, everything hangs on the answer to that question. And, and this field of thinking about the nature of the gospel and what it takes to receive a crown of righteousness is the sum of our entire faith. Whose righteousness is this? Because there are some in our midst who would say, if I can do the right thing, if I'm basically a good person, if I stand before God and I've done more good deeds than bad deeds, I will receive this crown of righteousness. And if Paul heard a person say that, he would say, no, no, a thousand times, no, Philippians 3, 9, I do not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Romans 10, 4, for Christ is the end of the law, that is the goal or the finish line of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not our righteousness that we receive, it is Christ's righteousness. Now when Jesus appears, whether that's this afternoon before we sit down to our Easter dinner tables, or that's tomorrow morning when we ready ourselves for school, or he comes a thousand years from now, and the scene unfolds that's depicted in Peter, that the the sky is rolled back like a scroll, that heavenly bodies are burned up and dissolved, that the entire earth and all of its works are exposed before God who will judge them. If I am depending on my own righteousness, which is fraught with problems, which is one step forward in the Christian life and three steps back, if I am depending on that, then what Paul says in verse 8 doesn't describe me. I don't love the appearing of Jesus. I'm terrified by the appearing of Jesus. Remember what happened when the apostle Peter first met Jesus? Remember that scene where he's fishing and Jesus comes and he performs a miracle. He says, put your net down here. And Peter brings in this massive haul of fish and senses that a miracle has happened and a righteous prophet is standing before him. What does Peter say? He falls on his face and says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. To bank on our own righteousness before Jesus is a terrifying thing that Peter wants nothing to do with. But that's not how a believer stands. The righteousness we receive is the righteousness of Christ. And because it's Jesus' righteousness that he gives to us, it is whole and perfect and complete. And if that is the basis on which we are being judged, that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son, then we as believers, verse 8, long for and love the fact that Jesus is going to appear. Notice in verse 8 what happens on that day, capital D. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And listen to this. Not only me, but to all who have loved his appearing. When Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, and millions of born-again believers stand before him in some marvelous and mysterious way, Jesus is going to hand out individual crowns. Paul does not say when he appears, there will be a general crown distribution 
in the welcome area. This is not going to be a crowd of people and a pile of crowns and angels saying, grab a crown and pass it down. This ain't Burger King. It's not, did your table get crowns because my table didn't get crowns. Paul is saying, the righteous judge will award a crown of righteousness to me, and not only to me, but to one per every person who has been born again and loves and longs for Jesus' appearing. There's no mass distribution of crowns because there's no mass distribution of the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's not how this thing works. When the prodigal son in Luke 15 returns home in shame to his father, and the father who's been waiting to see him jumps off the front porch and runs to him, he does not say to the prodigal, I know we have a closet full of robes and rings lying around here somewhere. I know we can get you fitted with something better to wear. No, He says, bring the best robe that I have and bring my signet ring because when you put this on my son, the one who is lost is now found. The one who is dead has now been raised to new life and everybody who sees him and sees how he is clothed will know that not only is he fully forgiven, but he has been restored to full membership in my house. Believer, I tell you, henceforth, With all certainty, when Jesus appears, it will be like this Greek runner who has run a marathon and won it, and he stands before the ceremony, and he is awarded that laurel crown that that goes on his head, and he is celebrated in the same way, and yet a thousand times more glorious when the sky rolls back like a scroll at any moment, Jesus will appear and he will give you a crown of his righteousness. In the resurrection of Jesus, the second coming is a grace. Let's pray together. Jesus, this sounds too good to be true, that everything you've promised in the gospel is hurtling towards a climatic end in which you will make good on all your promises, And you will give us your righteousness as a crown and as a robe. And we will dwell with you forever. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.